Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of Authors on the Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with author Matthew Ward. Matthew is a writer, cat servant, and owner of more musical instruments than he can actually play, and considerably more than he can play well. He's afflicted with an obsession for old places like castles, historic cities, and the London Underground chief amongst them, and should probably cultivate more interest to help expand out his author biography. After a decade serving as a principal architect in Games Workshop's Warhammer and Warhammer 40K properties, Matthew embarked on an adventure to tell stories set in worlds of his own design. He lives near, Notting- lives near Nottingham with his extremely patient wife, as well as a pride of attention-seeking cats, and writes to entertain anyone who feels there is not enough magic in the world. Matthew is also a part of Orbit's New Voices campaign back in 2019, alongside authors such as Gareth Hanrahan, Megan E. O'Keefe, Evan Winter, H.G. Perry, Alex E. Harrow, and Kaysen Calendar. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Ward. Hello. Hey, how are we doing today? Yeah, not too bad. Good. How about yourself? Ah, not too bad. Just uh, had the had the morning coffee, had breakfast. So I'm kind of up and at them now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's what it's uh, I don't know what about three or four o'clock there. Uh, yeah, about four o'clock now. Okay, so you've had you've had most of the day to I guess be productive and so forth. What have you been up to today? Oh, not a great deal, to be honest. A little bit of sorting out, a little bit of tidying. It's very exciting. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you you can make it more exciting. I guess it's kind of like one of those things where you you, you know you get injured or something. You've got to make up some grand story instead of like, oh, I fell down the stairs or something. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! So, uh, so kind of first off, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about growing up and going to school, and uh, kind of any hobbies you had outside of school. Uh, I, I always struggle with stuff like this. I'm really not that interesting. Um, I have always loved particular bits of science fiction and fantasy. I, I grew up uh, basically with shows like Doctor Who and things like that. There's a wonderful Robin of Sherwood show on um, ITV, as it is over here, uh, which is our commercial channel, distinct from BBC. Uh, and that took all the Robin Hood stuff and sort of gave it that extra layer of mythology and fantasy over the top of it. So from a quite early age, I was uh, affected by all of those bits and pieces. I, I kind of internalised them. Um and I've always loved sort of fantastic settings like that, uh, which have then sort of transformed into games and tabletop wargaming and bits and pieces like that. I'm saying like that a lot. You can see I've prepared incredibly well for this. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's it's one of those weird things when I take back, I try and take a step back and look at where I am now and how I got here from what I was doing. I honestly have no idea most of the time because this has all come quite late on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really, really boring. And I apologize to anyone who's hearing it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not, yeah, I can't think of anything exciting to say about my life to this point, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, did you did you go to university and so forth, or did you just do to I guess uh, your early schooling and then kind of got into working, or or how did you I guess grow up? Um, I I almost went to university. Um, I I was enrolled at a place and. I I was kind of there for about a day. It was something that I a place I could commute to from where I was living, 
but I realized quite quickly that it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing, but I knew it wasn't that, and it was going to cost a fortune on top of everything else. Uh, and I didn't want to sort of throw money away based off um, that expectation that comes with it. Because, of course, you, go, you can go to university, you can get your qualification, and it can take you wonderful places. But it's much better to know, to have an idea of where it's going to take you when you're going in. And I just looked at sort of spending three, four years studying something that I wasn't sure that I should be studying. And I kind of stepped away from that. Uh, and then I, so I, I then bimbled around in a couple of different jobs after that point um, and ended up working at Games Workshop, got hired to uh, be part of what at the time was the Lord of the Rings team within the design studio. Um, and then I was I was there for the next 12 years, um, which kind of brings us up to where I started writing for myself. Okay. So, so tell me a little bit about your time, I guess, with Games Workshop. So you said you started on the Lord of the Rings team. So what all kind of projects did you work on for them? Um, so at the time I started, the what was basically the games development team uh, was responsible for all kinds of bits and pieces so we would uh, we would uh, write the books we would do the do the rules and the background we would also do a lot of the promotional stuff that went out through the white dwarf magazine and other bits and pieces like that things for the website and so on but also planning uh, parts of the range and where we were going to take things from then on so uh, with lord of the rings because it was such a small team there are a lot of great opportunities there as time went on i ended up working in the other systems in warhammer Warhammer 40,000, um which was much the same thing but in a in a larger team okay i gotcha um so did you did you really enjoy your time there i mean you spent 12 years there so i i have to i have to believe you at least enjoyed most of your time there <laughs> yeah it's like anything else you're, you're there for somewhere you're there somewhere for that long and you see the good and the bad in, in different quantities, but most of it is great. People, people are by and large at workshop are absolutely fantastic. And it's, it's a pleasure to have worked with them. I gotcha. So, so is your name credited to, to any really well-known games? I assume it is. Um, it depends how you define what really well-known uh, I've written, <laughs> I well, in my time there, I, I wrote editions uh, for both Warhammer and 40,000 as well and Lord of the Rings. So I, I've had a foot in every system. Sounds like I've got three feet, which I don't think is true. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a whole range of books all the way through, um, culminating in the Warhammer End Times, where it ended up on my list of things that I had to do is I had to destroy the Warhammer world. To, so there was a space to usher the Age of Sigmar version into uh, I'm still not sure how I feel about that. It's very, very strange because, you know, I'd played Warhammer since I was about 13 or 14. Yeah. I'd come on board with things like Hero Quest, And uh, then to find yourself a couple of decades later going, yeah, so now this thing that you spent all this time as a customer and a member of staff working on, yeah, can you just blow it up, please? That's, <laughs> that's a bit weird. I, again, it's one of those weird ones where you go, I'm really pleased I got the opportunity to do it. I'm not sure I'm happy that we had to do it <laughs> because Warhammer was great. Yeah. Uh, Warhammer world. So, so I guess you would say you were more on the Warhammer side than really the D and D side, or did you play some D and D growing up? Cause I feel like yeah. most fantasy authors did. So. 
<laughs> no, the, the only D&D I have ever played has been on a PC, so I play things like Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights back in the day. Okay. Um, I've played a lot of the the adjacent ones, so things like the Dragon Age games and so on, which are essentially just a reskin D&D in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's not been my thing. It's one of those one of those little oddities why Games Workshop was so unusual, I think, when I was a kid, was that you, it was really hard to find things like that over here. Um, I don't think I knew, even knew that D&D existed for years and years after the fact. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, the, it just didn't quite have that reach. A lot of things which I think are certainly at, at the time were taken for granted in the States, like Dungeons and & Dragons and comic shops as well. I, I, I never had a, anything remotely like a local comic shop when I was a kid. But these days it's everywhere because it's no longer that sort of, um, I want to say niche, niche is the wrong word, but it's it's a much broader market. There's a much broader interest in those things these days, I think. And you can get them in all kinds of high street places that you never could before. Right. Yeah, and, and see, Dungeons & Dragons wasn't really anything that was introduced to me, I guess, until I started reading fantasy and seeing authors playing it. Because, I mean, I grew up on, you know, Super Nintendo and Pokemon and all that kind of stuff. So that was that was really like my childhood. And then I got into Zelda and so forth like that. But... And, and honestly, um, comic books really weren't, I guess, easily attainable unless I drove, you know, half an hour to an hour somewhere, like to a mall or something. And they maybe had, you know, 20 or 30 issues. <laughs> so you, you didn't really have a whole lot to pick from. But yeah, now it's just readily available everywhere. It's just kind of crazy. So uh, so as far as your writing career, who, um, I guess, who would you say was your biggest influence or who continues to influence, influence you to this day? Um, breaking it down a bit, I, it's that terrible cliched answer, but I always have to go back to Tolkien because it's where I came into fantasy and actually sort of the way that he constructed his worlds. He was very, very methodical and he wanted things to mean things. There's no, um, there's nothing sort of haphazard in any of Tolkien's writing, even if he's been through many, many drafts. And of course we know that there were loads of drafts of things like Lord of the Rings in particular, because of all of the sort of uh, appendix books that have been produced over the years. Uh, but yeah, in terms of sort of that aspiration to try and make worlds, Tolkien still remains the gold standard for me. It's not necessarily a popular opinion these days, because of course it's, it's a long time in the past now, and the actual writing style itself hasn't aged, mm -hmm. because writing styles don't age terribly. When we're talking about classics, they don't reflect modern books. Right. just because everything evolves. Um, but he's still he's still one of the greats, if not the great, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because a, a lot of the authors I've spoken to here recently, granted, it's been pretty much half and half in, in terms of horror or fantasy writers. So, but, you know, I, I, King is, is the one that I normally hear, at least from the writers as of recent. But... I, you know, I haven't really gotten many that have said Tolkien, um, and I'm kind of surprised by that. I figured that would be – he'd be kind of the gold standard as far as influential – or influences to, to writers nowadays or at least, you know, writers over the past 10 or 20 years. Um, but, you know, a lot of people kind of, I guess, starting to look at George R. R. Martin and stuff because he wrote back in the 80s and 90s and stuff, so they kind of look at him as – maybe it's younger writers, I guess, are looking at that, but – 
it's interesting that you bring up Tolkien because, like I said, I just don't hear that as often as you would think. Well, I think is it is that thing with stuff like this is is generational uh, in the, in a lot of ways, and actually sort of uh, I think reading generations are far uh, closer together than actual sort of real generations, family generations, I don't know. I'm really good with words today. We're doing very, very well. Um, <laughs> but the, I think because it changes with trends and for years and years and years, certainly until, I mean, when's the first, when was the first Shannara book out? I, I'm going to say that that's the mid to late seventies. And I think that's the only other sort of fantasy series that I can think of that, had a similar weight I and mean, obviously you know people listening to this they will know books that existed in between there but in terms of what i was aware of it's lord of the rings and then in that same epic fantasy vein you're into shannara and that's so much later in terms of its availability but now of course everything cycles through faster and faster and faster and i think it just depends what you grow up with and what what what's the book that finds you at that moment when you are you're most open and it actually becomes that thing that changes the way you think about things. Mm. Um, and I think probably had it been, you know, 20 years later, I don't know that it would necessarily have been Tolkien for me, but that was what, that was the thing that set my imagination going at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, as far as Shannara, yeah, the, uh, sort of Shannara was released in 1977 and the, it has been a series up until I guess 2018. I think Scar they're Vision. still going. Oh, yeah, I'm yes, pretty, I'm pretty positive he had one come out last year. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I mean, he's just continuing <laughs> to just dole out a novel a year or a novel every couple of years. So no, I mean, I I I, I love the early Shannara stuff. I've fallen away from the series as times now because I've just I don't read as much as I used to, to be honest, uh, but just the generational storytelling that exists in uh between so the first king of shannara and then into the original sword elfstones wish song trilogy and then to the scions block afterwards just the fact i like the fact that you get these sort of responsibilities and burdens handed down through families over sort of hundreds of years it's fantastic it's one of those little things that just lurks in the back of my head whenever i'm writing i got you yeah, because I mean, you know, you had like like you were saying, you had Lord of the Rings that was, you know, before Shannara, and then I'm not really sure what you had. I guess in the '80s, I'm not sure the big series that was then. Then you had like the Wheel of Time in the '90s, uh, which is also kind of when Song of Ice and Fire came out and stuff like that. So, so I guess it's I guess it's just like you would just read a big series and then you would move on to the next one as the as the decade hit, <laughs> and you just kind of keep continue moving on. So, would, so would you say that? Uh, I guess Tolkien and uh, and Brooks were kind of your main, like the main books that you read growing up, or did you read an assortment of novels? Um, I read all kinds of things. Um, so when I was a little bit older, I started uh, reading sort of old Alice McLean thrillers. Now, so Alice McLean was active, I think, from it's most of his stuff is from the mid 60s to to the early 80s because he died i think in 1986 and it's it's a it's a wonderful mix of sort of war stories and then into sort of um action thriller territory but he's got such a wonderful a wonderful wry command of language um that 
they're quite light reads, but the characters are always very nicely fleshed out, even if the plots aren't necessarily scientifically accurate in some cases, because that's the problem with a lot of thrillers, is that you're trying to write, I guess, um, sort of one step ahead of the headlines. So he, he definitely got fascinated by things like nuclear weapons at one point. I'm not necessarily clear that uh, he was clear on how they worked sometimes, but <laughs> that that's one of the things that that's one of the dangers of writing in the real world. It's one of the reasons I, I desperately try to avoid writing straight real world fiction if I can, because there are so many places to trip up, but his characters, his voice, his style is absolutely fantastic. Then a little bit after that, um, I got into Bernard Cornwall in a big way. So um, I started reading Sharp, I think, in my my mid-teens. Um, and again, those are one, those are wonderful, particularly from a point of view of how action is described and just how Cornwall takes uh, what could otherwise be quite dry historical details and breathes life into them. Uh, so you can actually you can picture yourself in the battles that he's writing, whether it's a skirmish of a half dozen people or whether it's thousands and thousands of combatants raging across Talavera or Waterloo or whatever. Wonderful things. Yeah, I need to read some more of Cornwall. I mean, uh, you know, I I honestly just I guess kind of found out about Last Kingdom when it was made into a to a net, or a series, and then it, it made it onto Netflix, and so I just binge watched all that was on there. But I know he's got a lot of uh, older novels that are just phenomenal. I guess, and I guess uh, as far as I guess like historical fantasy or um or so forth. I mean, would there would you have anybody to compare to? I guess his novels today. Um. Again, I, I read so little these days, it's really hard for me to draw comparisons. <laughs> I gotcha. Um, so tell me uh, a little bit about uh, your writing. So where do you typically find yourself writing? How do you mean? Sorry. So do you do you write at home? Do you write at coffee shops? Do you write uh, just on the go? I mean, does it depend on the day? Like uh, Not particularly. Most of it is done at my desk, uh, which is where I'm sitting at the moment. Um, I, I need a bit of structure to my day, and I'm also awful for distractions. I find background noise incredibly, incredibly uh, frustrating sometimes. <laughs> I, I have no idea how people manage to get anything done in coffee shops because it's just noise all the time. Yeah. Um, I got you. Yeah, Keelan Patrick Burke and I talked about it because we were saying that even like the slightest noise just automatically turns you off to anything you're doing <laughs> so he's like i have to have complete silence because he's we were talking about how some authors listen to music while they're writing and i just can't see how that's productive well you see i, I do listen to music from time to time because it's a good way of blotting out the background noise but wow. you do hit those points where it's not the character of the noise that's distracting it's the fact that you just need to be able to think in something approaching silence for a, a moment or two and even then, I can't just listen to anything. It has to be stuff that I know really well. So I'm not really listening to it. It's just there. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. It's, yeah. it's just background noise to cover the background yeah. noise. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's that's like kind of like me. I, I listen to audiobooks while I work. But if, if there's something I really need to engage in when I'm working, like if there's something specific I'm trying to 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 take out of something, I have to turn my audiobook off so I can have just not really dead silence because there's still people around me talking, but my headphones are in, so it kind of deafens some of that out. Yeah. Um, 
And I guess it's kind of the same thing. I've been seeing this uh, this meme go across social media here lately about, uh, you know, you know you're getting older when you have to turn the stereo down to be able to see a little bit clearer on the roadway. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that's, that's kind of the same thing is like it's not really helping you think more. It's just – I don't know, some, something about having absolutely nothing going on at all helps you think better. So, um, okay, well, uh, so do you do you write full-time now or do you still have another career that you're doing at the same time? Um, so the other thing that I do is I'm a freelance creative consultant, um, but I don't do that much of that uh, because my writing is sort of my full-time job and then I do this as the other bit on the side instead of the other way around. Um, I'm, and part of that's because I'm quite choosing the projects I take on because I don't, I have to really want to engage with something because I don't, I always, I feel guilty of taking someone's money for something that I'm not committed to. Because, <laughs> And I'm fortunate that I'm able to do that at the moment. So I normally take on about one or two a year uh, the main one, the whole time that I've uh, been doing it, has been uh, the Vermintide video game. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, so Vermintide, and now the current version being Vermintide 2, which is a Games Workshop license uh, game. Um, it's a cooperative first-person uh, melee combat thing against uh, horrible tides of Skaven and Chaos Warriors and rats and things like that. So I... I provide most of the story and the dialogue for that, and that's an ongoing, that's an ongoing um, task because the game's always expanding. So we've just put out a, a new level, uh, which has been free for everyone who owns the game, and that seems to have been going down really well. So that's always great. Okay, yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't actually played uh, any of the Warhammer games. I kind of, uh, I guess, when I started doing PC games, I was playing uh, Warcraft Three. That was like my big game for many years throughout middle school and high school. Was playing real time strategy games, um, and I, I kept seeing Warhammer pop up, but I just never, I guess, gave it a try. Uh, but yeah, I just, I just pulled up Vermintide Two, and I'm sitting there looking at the graphics, I and mean, it looks amazing. <laughs> no, it's. Uh... The the new levels in particular are absolutely fantastic. It's uh, I, had, I had to buy a new computer earlier in the year, and I'm really glad I did because I can actually now enjoy it in its full splendor instead of having to turn the graphics down and then still <laughs> getting about 30 frames a second out of it when it's doing well. Right. So it's 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 a it's a wonderful little game. It just goes from strength to strength. I say little game, it's enormous, yeah. but uh, I. I I can't even remember, for example, how many voice lines are in it, but it's thousands and thousands and thousands. Um, but yeah, it's it's really good fun to work on because I get to not only get to work with uh, sort of the designers and so on over in Fat Shark, uh, but actually be able to uh, work in the studio with the voice artists and the studio director is fantastic. That's awesome. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your writing process. Are you a plotter or are you a pantser? <laughs> I hate those terms. <laughs> I know we, we can come up with new ones, but that's, no, that's what I've got. <laughs> I, it's, it's more that it's more the thing of everything goes into boxes. I've, I've right. never been much of a fan of that, and because the truth is, it's different at different times. Um, Absolutely, I, I think um, I I much prefer writing things sort of in an organic process, so the, the pouncer style thing. I I much prefer doing that. But I can't always do that. 
I'll have to I'll have to take a step back and break out and break down a series, uh, the next set of stuff that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Um, some books I have to have a fairly solid plan from front to back because it's it's a lot easier to uh, to wing it when you're right at the start of, of the first book in the series because you've got more books to pick everything else up in if you need to. Right. But the further you get through, the more structured you have to be. Uh, but I certainly find it more like work when I have to plan mm-hmm. what I'm doing because uh, I'm not I'm not getting that moment of surprise. Oh, this has happened now. Oh, that's actually quite <laughs> cool. Uh, they said, no, no, I know that's happened. It's been written down in this Word document for three months now. It's, I, when can I do the fun thing? No, you can't do the fun thing. You have to follow the Word document. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's like setting setting rules for yourself. Yeah, a little bit. And of course, things always change as you go through anyway. It's it's never exactly uh, how you intend things to be. But there is something nice about discovering the story as you go in the same way that the reader's going to. It's just that sometimes you can't do it that way. Or you can, but I get too worried, so I can't. <laughs> and I guess, you know, if you if you especially with a uh, with a book the size of legacy of ash because i mean we're talking about a, a book that's almost 800 pages depending on the uh you know if you read on ebook or paperback or hardcover but you know when you get to that point and you plot out something and you start writing and you're like well you know but what if this happened and so you kind of almost trash something that you've already plotted out and you're like i'm going to completely change that and so it, it kind of makes you into a right you know fly by the seat of your pants at some point but at the same time, you're like, okay, but I still need to end it somehow so I can move on to the second and the third, and I need it to be able to end like this. And so I guess you kind of you go between stages of plotting and trying something new out to see if it works. Well, it's, it's, it's the other one. Legacy of Ash in particular, I actually knew how it was going to end. It was one of the only things I actually knew about it when I started writing it. Um and I try not to cause problems for myself where I have to go back and unpick something I've already done. Of course, it happens a bit. It always happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never quite got into the place where I've gone, and now I have to go back and rewrite 200 pages in the middle because <laughs> it really doesn't match what's going on with the rest of it. Yeah. I got to. Yeah, I feel like that would be pretty brutal. Yeah, and, and uh, it's it's part of some people's process, and if if it works for them, fantastic. I think I, it would drive me to distraction. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I, I see authors all the time uh, say that they you know wrote however many thousand words, and they're like, oh, I had to trash it; it just wasn't working. I just go, gosh, I can't even like write a thousand words about trashing it because I don't think it's any good. <laughs> I can't imagine getting to sixty-five, seventy, a hundred thousand words and just be like, no, this is garbage. And go, it goes in the garbage pile. Well, again, different people have different ways of engaging with it. It's not something I could, I I hope, or rather, I hope it's not something I will ever have to do. <laughs> um, I've, yeah. I've written things where I've gone, yeah, this could be better. I'm not at the moment sure how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never had a thing where I've gone, no, this whole thing just needs to go in the virtual shredder. There's no point keeping it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's good. At least you haven't gotten to that point yet. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> yeah, 
Great. So, uh, so let's talk a little bit about Legacy of Ash. So it's book one of the Legacy Trilogy. So it was originally released in the UK on November 5th of 2019, uh, but we're going to have a paperback release in the US on April 9th from Orbit Books. But it is currently available for purchase as an ebook and an audiobook in the US for anybody that is looking for a new epic fantasy to start reading. But it's hailed as an unmissable fantasy debut, an epic tale of intrigue and revolution, soldiers and assassins, ancient magic, and the eternal clash of empires. It reads, this is actually my blurb that I just found out was on Amazon yesterday, which I was pretty excited about, but it reads like a perfect blend of a song of ice and fire and the last kingdom. So if either of those tickles your fancy, this was probably going to be for you. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, it's actually, uh, Orbit is calling it your fantasy debut. So would you mind talking a little bit about legacy of Ash and what we can expect or what the audience can expect? Uh, so Legacy of Ash is a story about a new generation grappling with the mistakes of the ones that came before. Uh, so it, it digs down to the distinction between responsibility and duty and law and justice, that kind of thing, um, as different perspectives come into play on what's happened in the past. Because history is always history is always fluid, even in the real world, but particularly in this setting, which is largely in the Tresian Republic, history is incredibly fluid. It's rewritten to match what people think it should have been. Um, so extreme takes can come along as a result of that. So as we enter the book, the Tresian Republic's under assault from a, from a faction within the Hadari Empire, which is neighboring realm, much, much, much larger and more warlike realm. Um, and this creates an opportunity for our lead characters to stand together and heal old wounds if they want to. But of course the past hangs heavy over everything. And to make things even more complicated, there are some divine forces interfering on the margins in quite subtle ways in some cases and not so subtle in others. I gotcha. So, um, so it starts out kind of with a, uh, I guess, like a past time, like the, the first chapter it kind of builds into, I guess, what you expect for the rest of the novel. Um did you, I guess, have this as an intentional thing? Did you did you not want to start out kind of in a present day, or did it, is that just kind of how the story plotted itself out? Um, I think because of the main characters, so we, we've got four main characters really in the book, and three of them are present in the the initial chapter. And I think I'm not a big fan of writing flashbacks. Mm -hmm. I, I like to be able to tell things, tell the story in the order that it unfolds and actually taking that opportunity to visit this point in time. That's the formative point for three of the characters just seemed like the sensible thing to do because it, everything that happens in that first chapter casts a shadow over the rest of the book. Gotcha. Um, so did you, did you set out to write such a large novel? I mean, it's, it's at a, a little over 780 pages for book one of the trilogy. Did you, did you, <laughs> did you like, all right, I'm going to write a really long book or is it just the story just continued to expand? And so that, you know, led to more pages and more words and so forth. Um, it's a, it's a slightly strange one because again, I, I knew where I wanted it to end. Um, and you hear, you hear this thing, writers talk about it, and I know some sort of movie directors do as well, is trying to find the story while they're, they're working on it. And knowing the, who my main characters were and where they needed to be at the end of the book, I then realised that it wasn't three main characters. There was a fourth one in there and who is 
sort of the antagonist in the book as well, because actually her decisions are the catalyst for almost everything that's going on. Um, and once I started unpicking what her story and her background was, that's probably the thing that expanded it more than anything else, because actually, I'm, as, as you know, you, you've read it, there are just points in the book where it's not necessarily clear which side you're supposed to be rooting for, to be honest. Yeah. Because uh, you have a rift between some of the the main characters on in the Tresian Republic, and then you have um, uh, Milana Serenal in the Hadari Empire, who's got her own goals that she's working towards. And actually, you want her to be able to achieve those. You just wish that she could do it without doing terrible things to everyone else as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and it kind of has, I guess, a little bit of um, subtle magic in it. Uh, did you intend to have, I guess, kind of like a subtleness that kind of, I guess, became bigger as the book went on? Because um, I feel like in one one character in particular, which we're not going to divulge who it is, <laughs> but ha has – an ability. <laughs> and um, like I said, it's, it's very, it's kind of subtle in the beginning, but it becomes more of a manifestation, I guess, as it goes along and becomes more of a, of a point of interest, I guess. Did you, did you intend for that? Is that something that, and how did you come up with that? I guess. Uh, is my main I, question. I think it's, we're probably back into my, my grounding in Tolkien, to be honest, because one of the, obviously one of the big narrative things about Lord of the Rings is that actually your main characters at the start of the book live in this place that just seems kind of normal. Mm -hmm. And everything, all the mythic stuff and all the magical stuff kind of happens a very long way away, except for this one wizard who comes in and starts interfering with things. And I think everything that I've ever really written, I like to work from just that point of view of, there have to be things for the characters to to uncover along the way. So I knew that it's a fantasy setting. So there's normally a little bit of magic in a fantasy setting. But I knew that that was going to be there, but I didn't want it to be the thing that was important about the fantasy setting. It wanted to be part of the texture. Mm -hmm. um, so as you say, as you go through, it becomes more and more noticeable as actually the characters are realising that there's more of it around them than they thought there was. Um, so that that absolutely is a, that's absolutely a deliberate choice. It's it's one of those things of um, what one of my preferences with magic is that it actually keeps that aura of mystery even from the characters within the story, because and this is absolutely just my point of view. It's not a, a right or wrong thing, but if you understand how magic works it's not magic anymore. It's actually just science mm -hmm. because you know what you need to put into it and what you need to get out. So I, I, I always much prefer to look at it as being sort of almost a talent based thing mm -hmm. where you have an innate ability with it and how far you can push that and what you can use it for depends on what you're prepared to push yourself into doing. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> it does. <laughs> you're fine. Um, 
and so like I said, so, so Orbit is kind of saying this is, is your fantasy debut, but I guess it's really your fantasy debut with that imprint. Because uh, I know you have written some other books uh, and released a few more. Uh, it looks like you've got done some in the Codex series for Warhammer. Uh, and then you've got a couple of others. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, some of your books or maybe one of your favorites that you've written prior to Legacy of Ash? Um, so the the main stream that exists outside is sort of a real-world fantasy stuff. Um, so there's a novel called Queen of Eventide, which is a sort of pseudo-Robin Hood thing. So this is where we come back to my Robin Hood show of fascination. It always comes back to what I used to, to read and watch as a kid, one way or another. Um, so it's actually set in mostly present-day Nottingham, but it's a slightly different take on Robin Hood myths and legends with a bit more of the actual mythic rather than historical in it. And then the other the other bits that tie into that is I have a setting called Cold Harbour, which is essentially weird stuff happening in buried places uh, beneath London, so in London underground and old bits of the city that you you just can't access anymore. Just all these wonderful little hidey holes that you get built up as the city grows and places get left behind. So I have a couple of novellas for that floating around as well. I gotcha. Yeah, I think I saw a little bit on your website um, about about that, and I think you've got like some character arcs and stuff like that uh, based on your website uh, for the, for those series. So that's that's pretty neat. I, I'll have to I have to dive into those when I when I get some time since I've I've got it pulled up. So um, now you say that you don't have a whole lot of time, I guess, or especially here recently to read. But is there is there anything that you've read here recently that uh, that you'd recommend to the audience? Um, towards the end of the last year, I read uh, The Unlikely Escape of Uriah Heep, which is H.G. Perry's uh, Orbit debut from last year. Uh, she won my fellow uh, New Voices for 20, 2019. And that's that's wonderful because, it, it, again, it's another sort of real-world adjacent fantasy um, about characters coming to life out of books and what happens as a result after that. And that that's just wonderful. Um, it's just got a wonderful quirky tone to it and characters that you can really get behind. I certainly recommend that to anyone who likes who likes those likes a book that can make you think that actually this is happening in the world right now. It's just not happening where you are, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, actually, uh, I think she just had her paperback release not too long ago or it's coming up. <laughs> can't remember no I, I think that's i think that's right yeah because uh because i know uh her, she had a hardcover release last year uh when it first i guess wasn't announced and published and then uh, she's got the new the new paperback coming out now is uh is your is legacy of ash coming out in hardcover in the u.s or is it just paperbacks i know you had a you had a hardcover release in the uk back in november because i think you did like a big signing for it right um, yeah, so the, the hardcover release uh, was a limited, I think it's 500 copies, uh, UK-only release. Um, and then what's coming to the US and actually to, to the UK in April is your, your your paperback, effectively. There's already been a trade paperback available in some other English language markets, so things like Australia and New Zealand and Ireland and, and so on and so forth. Um but yes, in terms of what's coming to the US, it it's the paperback now in April. Okay. Uh, so tell me, what are you what are you working on now? I'm assuming uh, book two in the Legacy trilogy. Oh no, I'm working on book three now. Oh uh, wow, nice. <laughs> yeah. So the edits for book two, which is called Legacy of Steel, 
um, are we're currently just working towards the end of that process now. Um, but to all intents and purposes, it exists as a thing. Um, so I'm about a third of the, maybe a bit more than a third of the way into book three, which I can't talk about the title for because yeah, we haven't agreed it yet and I probably shouldn't say even if we had. So. But we could probably guess it's legacy of blank. Could <laughs> <laughs> be, could be. Um, I, I like, like I say, I, I like structure to things, so it's a lot easier if I can go, oh, look, this name is a bit like the other name. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know uh, I'm definitely looking forward to, to Legacy of Steel. I, mean, I, I love Legacy of Ash. I mean, I know, uh, you know, it, it was, I kind of read it at the time that the UK release was happening and was able to get to it last year, but I know there's a lot of people uh, looking forward to it, and I know, uh, myself and uh, Nils, who's over at Fantasy Hive now, and a few other bloggers. I think Nick Brelli read it as well. But we all kind of almost did like a buddy read without knowing it. Uh, Legacy <laughs> of Ash, and, and all just absolutely loved it. So uh, I know I know it's definitely going to be a big hit when it comes out uh, in April. So, um, but man, I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your day to to chat with me, and uh, especially. It's it's always nice to talk to authors who so love their books. So <laughs> it's been it's been a pleasure. But everybody that's listening in, uh, like I said, it's uh, Legacy of Ash is already out in the UK and a few other areas. But uh, and it is available in the US if you read uh, you know ebooks or if you listen to audiobooks. But the paperback release is going to be on April 9th. Uh, and then we'll be obviously looking forward to Legacy of Steel when it comes out. I'm assuming 2021. Uh, Legacy of Steel will be this year. This so, year, okay. This year. Yeah, is that um, going to be? Uh, is that going to be a worldwide release? Um, I'm not hugely privy to the details at the moment, but <laughs> uh, I would expect it'll be something similar to how Legacy of Ash has been released. Okay. But I, but I don't know. Yeah, I got you. I know every publisher is different. I was just talking to to Justin Call the other day, and uh, they did a similar thing, like Golance. Uh, uh, did Master of Sorrows in the UK like months ago, and then the US release from Blackstone is in three days. Um, right. So I was just, and then the second book's going to come out simultaneously in, in all the countries. So I was just curious if they were doing it that way or not. So, but every, like I said, every publisher is different. So, <laughs> um, but everybody, you can find Matthew on Twitter at The Tower of Stars, and you can also find his website. It's thetowerofstars.com. Uh, and yeah, Matthew, just thank you again for coming on. Uh, thank you for such an amazing first novel. And we're looking forward to the, the next two in the series. And anything else that you got coming out? No, it's a pleasure to have been here. Absolutely. Well, uh, you enjoy the rest of your weekend. And uh, let's do this again. Yes, absolutely. Thanks. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to read Legacy of Ash, stay tuned for a clip from the audiobook presented by Hachette Audio and read for you by Susanna Hampton. I hope you enjoy it. Wind howled along the marcher road. Icy rain swirled behind. Katja hung low over her horse's neck. Galloping strides jolted weary bones and set the fire in her side blazing anew. Sodden reins soared at her palms. She blotted out the pain, closed her ears to the harsh raven song and ominous thunder. There was only the road, the dark silhouette of Escavord's rampart, and the anger. 
anger at the council for forcing her hand, at herself for thinking there'd ever been a chance. Lightning split grey skies. Catcher glanced behind. Jasiri was a dark shape, his steed straining to keep pace with hers. That eased the burden. She'd lost so much when the Phoenix banner had fallen, but she'd not lose her son. Nor her daughter. Escavord's gate guard scattered without challenge. Had they recognised her, or simply fled the naked steel in her hand? Katya didn't care. The way was open. In the shadow of jettied houses, sodden men and women loaded sparse possessions onto cart and dray. Children wailed in confusion. Dogs fought for scraps in the gutter. Of course, word had reached Escavord. Grim tidings ever outpaced the good. You did this. Katya stifled her conscience and spurred on through the tangled streets of Highgate. Her horse forced a path through the crowds. The threat of her sword held the desperate at bay. Yesterday, she'd have felt safe within Escavord's walls. Today, she was a commodity to be traded for survival, if any had the wit to realise the prize within their grasp. Thankfully, such wits were absent in Escavord. That, or else no one recognised Katya as the Dowager Duchess Trelan, the phoenix of prophecy. No, not that. Katya was free of that delusion. It had cost too many lives, but she was free of it. She was not the phoenix whose fires would cleanse the Southshires. She'd believed. Lumestra, how she'd believed. But belief alone did not change the world. Only deeds did that, and hers had fallen short. The cottage came into view, firestone lanterns shone upon its gable. Elder had kept the faith. Even at the end of the world, friends remained true. Katya slid from the saddle and landed heavily on cobbles. Chainmail's broken links gouged her bloodied flesh. Mother? Jasiri brought his steed to a halt in a spray of water. His hood was back, his blonde hair plastered to his scalp. She shook her head, hand warding away scrutiny. It's nothing. Stay here, I'll not be long. He nodded. Concern remained, but he knew better than to question. He'd grown into a dependable young man, obedient, loyal. Katya wished his father could have seen him thus. The two were so much alike. Jasiri would make a fine duke if he lived to see his seventeenth year. She sheathed her sword and marched for the front door. Timbers shuddered under her gauntleted fist. Elder? Elder, it's me. A key turned. The door opened. Elder Safka stood on the threshold, her face sagging with relief. My lady, when the rider came from Zanya, I feared the worst. The army is gone. Elder paled. Lumestra, preserve us. The council emptied the chapter houses against us. I thought the masters of the orders had sworn to take no side. A knight's promise is not what it was, and the council nothing if not persuasive. Katya closed her eyes, lost in the shuddering ground and brash clarions of recent memory. And the screams, most of all.
one charge and we were lost. What of Jasiri? Tamor? Jasiri is with me. My brother is taken. He may already be dead. Hope you guys enjoyed my chat with fantasy author Matthew Ward. Stay tuned on the 26th as I talk to author Christian Cameron. We'll talk about his Trigger Sun Cycle series as well as the Master and Mages trilogy he just wrote under the pen name Miles Cameron. Also on the 28th, I'll be dropping an episode with Teresa Frohawk. We'll talk about her Los Nephilim series, including the novel I just finished called Where Oblivion Lives, as well as the upcoming novel releasing on the 25th called Carved from Stone and Dream. Uh, so guys, stay tuned for those episodes and even more. Thanks. Thanks.